0: Well, hi, folks. Welcome back. Another week goes by. We appreciate your, well, your indulgence, I guess would be the best way to put it, (laughs) joining us here for another week. Hey, I hope you had a great Christmas out there. There's nothing better than the holiday season if things go well. And really, if things don't go well, it's still the holiday season. We try to make the best of it. It can get expensive and, you know, crowded and people don't know how to drive, apparently. There's something that happens in a lot of people's brains around the holidays. They become incapable of uh, operating a motor vehicle, but putting that aside, hope you had a great time. Anyway, what I was going to say was that, uh, hold on a second here, I'm adjusting something. I am not in my studio. I am in a remote location, not eh, far away, not super far away, not like Afghanistan or someplace. Still in the United States and not that far away from the West, which, of course, is the last best hope for America, as near as I can tell. The West and the South. Everything else seems to be slipping away from us, but um, yeah, we might get it back. Hard to say. I think it's up to us, frankly. Anyway, so what I wanted to say was, uh, this week has been interesting because you know usually during this time, what happens is that we are at a time when uh, you know things are slow, nothing much is happening. No one's paying attention to what's going on, and we're just sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, it's all fine and good, and things are just going to slip by, and and we'll be fine, and Congress will just laze around in Washington, and, you know, it's cold up there, and they won't do a whole lot until a new Congress comes in. And, of course, that's not true at all, especially not anymore. What we've discovered is that uh, Congress... When it's especially run by the Democrats, eh, Republicans aren't so hot either. But the Democrats especially have decided that this time of year, just like the middle of the night, is a great time to do things. You know, you just cannot have enough time to sneak up on people. So what they decided to do is do a few things here during this lull in people's attention. Now, we know what they did. The main thing they did, with 18 Republicans' help, by the way, $1.7 trillion budget that's so filled full of pork and useless nonsense that uh, it might as well just have a whole fence around it uh, like you usually put hogs in because that's how much pork it has in it. And at the same time, we have the Fed trying to control inflation, finally. And by the way, I'm not going to let them get away with this idea that, oh, well, you know, we were working on this all the time. No, you weren't. Matter of fact, you were colluding with the Biden administration at the Federal Reserve to try and make things seem better than they were. And by doing so, you created most of this inflationary problems we're dealing with, and you contributed to them in a major way by this quantitative easing, which they were doing, which what they were doing was they were trying to buy their own government bonds. And by doing that, they were controlling interest rates and stuff in in a different way. Well, where do they get the money to buy their own bonds? Well, they get part of it from us. But see, we've passed the point where we can afford to just collect money from Americans. Now we're going to make a pretty good effort at that now, because what we're going to do is we're going to hire eighty-seven thousand IRS agents, apparently just to work on people like Bill Gates and you know Elon Musk. All eighty-seven thousand work on them. What a ridiculous idea that they would try to float that to the American citizens and expect them to believe it for a minute. Of course, that's not what's going on. What's going on is that we need more money. And the real money in America, and it doesn't feel like it to you folks, is with you, the vast bulk of the taxpayers. Not with a few billionaires. Now, I read, and I think I mentioned this on the show before, I read probably three months ago, that if you confiscated, not just taxed at a high rate, but confiscated all the money that the billionaires have in the United States, we would run the country for less than eight months. So that's not where the money is. The money's with you people, the productive people who are bringing home paychecks and have a little money in the bank and try and buy a few things. You're generating so much of the money in the economy, that's where it lives. And that's who it needs to be scooped up if you're an administration that needs money. And the Democratic administration needs money. And the way they get it is to investigate you and see if you're not paying anything. Me, I figure that, you know, I'm pretty obviously a Republican and a conservative, so I overpay everything. I know Sean Hannity talks about that, too. I make sure there's nothing in my taxes that I haven't, you know, paid more than my fair share on. But if they go after you hard enough, they can always find things, and especially certain groups. And the group they're really, really going after right now are people in the "quote gig economy"? Remember when that was a something we just applied to, like uh, musicians that smoke marijuana a lot. Oh, yeah, I'm going on a gig, man. Now it's the gig economy. What they really mean are people that are out there delivering food, DoorDash, things like that. People who are Uber drivers. People are doing all these kinds of little things on the side to earn extra money. The government, as I've said before, is convinced that you're cheating them somehow if that's what you're doing. You're not paying your taxes. You're pocketing that money. They can't track it. Where is it? We need to have it. we got to get it in the bank. By the bank, I mean, you know, back in the federal taxes, in the treasury. We need it so we can spend it on, you know, really important things like shipping it off to the Ukraine and not finding out where it's being used. And and we can use it on things like not spending it on the border, but, you know, securing the border in Ukraine. Not to blame the Ukraine for everything. There's a bazillion things that they're wasting money on. But they have to have the money from you. And they're convinced that you're pocketing money behind their back. And they're going to find it. And you know what signals what's really going on so clearly? It is this $600 threshold. Remember when they were passing this in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act? Jeez, man, people's lips should catch on a fire when they say that and think that people don't understand what it really means, which means the Inflation Creation Act, or rather the Inflation Elongation Act. Anyway, remember part of that was that they were going to require the banks, and of course, as we discover now, PayPal, Venmo, all these places that take money on people's behalfs, to report to the Treasury any transaction of over $600. Remember they were like, "Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous!" I mean, you know, when everybody heard about that, everybody was crazy because they saw what was what was coming. So <laughs> and they changed it. Remember they said, "Oh no, 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 we're not gonna, we're not gonna requiring that. We're just gonna require transactions, you know, of over ten thousand dollars a year." Yeah, that's six hundred dollars, you know, for six hundred dollars a month. <laughs> It was like, oh, okay, no, that, that's much better. No, that's what they're requiring. Now, if if that piece of the economy was not where they were going at, if that's what, not what they were chasing down, then why would they be so intent on forcing people to report, or rather convincing themselves that people were not reporting the money that they were getting from here? Which, by the way, I don't think that's a hugely widespread thing anyway. So, it's clear that this new push for the IRS agents is going to be to go after just regular people. And they are really going to audit, in my opinion, people who have side jobs or who are doing other things. If you're a DoorDash driver out there, or if you drive for Lyft or Uber or something with a little more money in your pocket, they're convinced you're not reporting all of it. So, that's what they're going to be examining. And they want to make sure that, you know, Everything over six hundred dollars is reported. So these transactions that go to your bank, or through PayPal, or these other ways that you pay, people pay you, right, are all reported to the IRS. And if for some reason—and this, of course—who would do this if you? I mean, we don't have enough IRS agents, of course. Just another eighty-seven thousand. It's just a drop in the bucket in their mind, I guess that's what it is. I think they would like to have an IRS agent for every person. But then they get to compare the records from the banks and all these transactions, what's reported. And if you get audited, they're going to compare what is shown through all these other accounts and financial transactions with what you've reported. And if you haven't, they're going to make sure you pay that. And when they make sure you pay that, of course, there'll be penalties and interest on that that will increase that that, that thing's value to them and the cost to the person that they're coming after. So they're going to come in after that pretty strongly. That's what's going to happen and that's the kind of things that are going on out there when we're not paying attention. Now during this little lull as people would like to pretend that happens with the government right now, we saw the 1.7 trillion dollar budget go through as I said, and that's just a huge mess too, all kinds of things. Now we haven't read through its over 4000 pages. So we're going to have our work cut out for us. Huh? All right. All right. Thanks for sticking with me, everybody. I appreciate that. We are back. Listen, I wanted to clarify something that I should have clarified at the beginning of the last segment, and I didn't because I was uh, talking too much. And so that is this $600 requirement of reporting that I was discussing in the first segment. That has been delayed from next year, just so I'm clear, to 2024. So it instead of... Taking place in the next year, it is allegedly going to take place the following year. And the reason for that was, as you might guess, a huge outcry. Now not from you folks, because what you folks don't, it doesn't matter what you folks say. It was from all of the institutions and in fact things like PayPal and Vimo and those kinds of guys that are all involved in the payment or receiving payment for people and having to figure out some way to do this reporting requirement. So they raised heck and the administration decided, well, I guess we can hunt down taxpayers a little bit later if you're telling us you can't get it done next year and you don't have the mechanisms to do it yet. So while you develop these mechanisms to identify, label, and help us hunt down taxpayers to make sure we squeeze every drop out of them, we'll give you a little extra time. So it's still coming. It's just not coming as uh, fast as uh, I might have legit you to believe. I should have said that in the beginning, but it's still coming. And what we could hope for is some kind of Uh, There's not really any hope. I was going to say some kind of change out of Congress, since at least uh, the Democrats are not holding the the House and the Republicans are. Now, remember, it's a pretty slim majority. But here's the thing, because they're going to be whining about this. Republicans are going to be like, we don't have any votes. and The majority, we're just barely the majority. They have the same majority in the House that Nancy Pelosi did this last two years and has had no problem ramming through every crazy bit of legislation that they can think of. And so if that's the case with the Democrats, then I'm just not real super interested in listening to the Republicans whine about why they can't do it. Usually, when they do that, that's because they're either A, incompetent, or B, complicit in wanting to do the same big government spending nonsense that the Democrats did. And there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, trying to buy votes in their district, trying to get along with the Democrats so they'll do things for them. Yeah, you name it. And just plain lack of intestinal fortitude. which you see plenty of that out there for sure. But that first part we talked about is going to be implemented in 2024. They will be preparing it uh, next year. It's sort of like being prepared for dinner. You know, for those of you that may remember, I believe it was a Twilight Zone episode. I want to say Outer Limits, but I think it was Twilight Zone. If you've watched that, uh, reruns are just constant out there, so it doesn't matter what your age is, you have plenty of opportunity to watch it. Where there's a spaceship that lands, and the aliens come down to Earth, and they have these big, tall heads on them. I think the heads uh, uh pulsate or light up. I can't remember which one they're communicating, because they do it all telepathically, you know. And they just want to help, they're just here to help man. And they have a book that they, they give out, and they finally get it translated about in the middle through of the episode, and it's How to Prepare Man. And people are saying, oh, it's how to you know get along with this, and how to prepare us for all the help they're going to give us. And right at the end, when uh, one of the scientists agrees to get on the spaceship and fly back, uh, another scientist, a woman, I believe, bursts through the crowd and says, the book, How to Prepare Man, it's a cookbook. And then he's hustled on board the ship, and uh, away he goes. And uh, I believe the last scene is they're trying to get him to eat more. (laughs) I thought that was always pretty funny. And I remember that, and I believe that's sort of what's going on now. They're Okay, they're going to give us a little reprieve before they start in, but they'll be preparing us in various ways and, of course, trying to fatten us up so that they can get as much money out of it as possible. But, uh, you know, I don't know what there is to do about it the just holding one of the houses isn't going to be able to change that legislation. And even if we had the House and the Senate, and, of course, we're one vote further away from that than we were last year, they still wouldn't do it because the president would veto it. Now, remember, if the president vetoes something, it can be overridden. But in order to override the veto, you need a two-thirds vote and both houses. That's certainly not going to happen. So nothing would happen. Now, I don't think Joe would veto it annoyingly. He doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't know if his dog was biting people. If you're familiar with that little bit of flotsam that's floating around out there from a book about him, how he thought the Secret Service was maybe lying about his dog biting them all the time. Because, and keep this to yourself, there may be MAGA Secret Service agents. That's right. That's what he thinks. Some of these MAGA Secret Service agents are against him. A lot of them supported Trump, you know. They're hunting them down, I'm sure, but... It's not easy if you're clever enough to kind of keep things under your hat. Don't talk about it. But, you know, just lie about his dog biting you repeatedly. Yeah, that's how you get back at him. What incomprehensible dolt he is. Uh, luckily, he's surrounded by other incomprehensible dolts, so he doesn't stand out quite as much as he might, you know, if you were around normal people. But, but here's, let's talk about something else for a moment. One of the things that I'm always very... Pleased and a little surprised about is when we talk about how history reflects on present day. And you know, I have a big interest in history and I'm very fascinated with it, as I've said many times before, you know, history being the laboratory of the present and the future for that matter. So I just can't believe that people don't spend more time examining it. And so I worry that sometimes if I get off on tangents and whatever, that. It's a little tedious or boring. But you people are always so, so pleasant with me about it. And I, I get nice feedback on this kind of historical uh, parallels that we take. You know, this is an amateur historian here and a keen observer, perhaps, of history and uh, politics these days. But, you know, by no means an expert in the historical t- goings on, like, say, Victor Davis Hansen or someone like that. But I do try and learn from it. And what's fascinating about it is some of the parallels that just jump out at you of what's going on today. One of them that just is, I I just can't shake it, is every time I see these just crazy images of the illegal aliens, I don't know what else to call them, they are migrants, that's true, Uh, they are undocumented, that's true, and they are also illegal aliens, that is also true, coming across the Rio Grande. Now, the Rio Grande isn't the Danube <laughs> in Europe. The Danube is a big, deep river. But the Danube was always the dividing line between the Roman Empire and the more barbarian tribes. Uh, my A lot of my ancestors, the Germans and uh, the far northern Saxons up into uh, all the way up into Norse, which didn't really get all the way down to the Danube. But that, a bunch of the tribes in there. And then Tribes that were sort of inhabiting what was called the Sea of Grass out there in uh, this area, sort of around the Black Sea. Well, what had happened was that boundary had been pretty firmly established because the Germanic tribes, as they were called by the Germans, by the rather uh, the uh, Romans, and there were a lot of tribes that were not quite what we would think of as Germanic, but they sort of got thrown in the thrown in the basket with everybody else were pretty heavy fighters, unlike the most of the Gauls. And most of the Gauls were what we think of as French. Not French now. Some of the Gauls were more Germanic. And the Germanic tribes were kind of a rough-and-ready people and not easily beaten and were quite willing to fight uh, to the last man there. And so the Romans had a hard time with them. And, of course, to get to most of them, you had to cross the Danube and the Rhine but the Danube being a deep, difficult river, by the time they could get people across, uh, they had a hard time supplying them and keeping up any kind of uh, worthwhile force against them through supply problems and so forth. Also, the terrain was so different; it didn't really favor the Roman legions. Remember, the Roman legions really fought much better in more of an open environment and a forested region with uh, some a lot of water a few bogs here and there and things like that not a not a good area to fight in a legion even one as sophisticated and capable of rapid movement and tactical changes in how it operated as a roman legion wasn't good you could get lost in those forests or you could get in, go in get split up and so you didn't have a united front and attack from all sides which is what happened to the Teutonburg forest to them but anyway so they had decided, usually during the time of Marcus Aurelius, really, they sort of solidified the border along the Danube. And that was the crazy barbarian Germans and tribes, that, some of which came from Poland and things like that, or we think it was modern-day Poland, were relegated to that side. And that was just fine. You just stay over there, wear your goofy clothes, uh, have your long hair, which, by the way, they, um, they had long hair. The Romans kept their hair fairly short. And were clean shaven. Now remember, that a lot of that is sort of environmental. Uh, they are people from the Mediterranean, and it's nice and warm and uh, breezy down there, and this and that. So their clothing tended to be more like tunics, sandals. Even the Roman marching, uh, what we think of sort of a boot was sort of a sandal that uh, had uh, hobnails on it. And but it was still, you know, sort of basic. What you think of? you would find in Italy and so forth at that time. It was clothing more for an airier, drier, and uh, warmer climate. The Germanic tribes, of course, didn't have that. So what they were looking to do was trying to stay warm. And uh, so they looked very different. And they also wore their hair longer because it was cold, and they wore beards because it was cold. And uh, so they were looking very different. And the word we get barbarian from, by the way, is the idea that The Romans thought their language sounded terrible, and uh, they couldn't understand it Now, if you hear Latin, real Latin, uh, it's very uh, light, and uh, it's a very beautiful-sounding language, but it's spoken more towards the front of the palate. Germanic languages and Slavic languages are much more deeper in the throat and tend to sound a lot rougher. The Romans thought that uh, they sounded like they were saying the word bar, 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 bar all the time. So they got the word barbarian. We'll talk a little bit more about the barbarians. <laughs> Alrighty then, here we are back. Thanks for sticking with me. I get a little long-winded on that stuff sometimes. I appreciate your patience. I just kind of want to lay the groundwork sometimes for some historical precedents that we see out there. And of course, what we're seeing now is you know something that's been seen in various forms, probably countless times in human history, but... Uh, although countless is sort of like saying infinite, but uh, let's say many, many times in human history. When we we see these influxes of people across borders and things like that, it certainly is a, a phenomenon that you see. And The question you have to put to yourself and see what you want to do with it is can I learn something from it? And so that's why I wanted to bring up this, uh, well, the 5th century. And I always get confused, by the way, on this. Uh, the 5th century, which would have been around the 400s, late 400s in uh, Rome, you know, it sort of just went kapoop. (laughs) I mean, uh, it was sacked by the Vandals, and there was a Gothic king installed in Rome after that, and they sort of existed for a while under that situation. But the the real problem, the real final decline in Rome, started really about 376, which would have been the 4th century. It's always confusing to me as I start to say about the centuries because you think, wait a second, I mean, it's 3-something. How can it be the 4th century? It's like asking yourself, how can the 20th century be 1999? It just takes you a second to think about it. And, of course, the answer is because the 1st century, when we sort of calibrate that from the birth of Christ, the 1st century is from year 1 to year 100. <laughs> so that means the 2nd century starts with 100. So that's, when you think about that, go, oh yeah, of course, that's how that works. But otherwise, it starts, it starts seeming, oh, I don't know how that happened. Especially when you go back into ancient history, where, you know, you talk about the first century, second century, third century. Anyway, about 376, right in there, the Gothic tribes that were coming in from Poland and Germany and out in the steppes area, the, uh, around the Black Sea, uh, which they had loosely called the Goths, and there was there were a bunch of different tribes, but they were loosely called the Goths, mainly by the Romans. And were getting pushed that way uh, towards the west by the Huns, which were a very wild-eyed, crazy tribe of uh, fighters in the steppes of Asia. And they were being pushed that way by the Han Chinese Empire. So it was just sort of being like dominoes being pushed that direction. But the Danube River had always been sort of the dividing line there, as I'd said in the last segment. And finally, the Goths got across it. And they'd been asking permission to get across it from the Roman Empire. And they'd been, you know, not letting them. They let a few across. And then this and that. And the next thing you know, the whole civilization, as it were, of the Goths, started finding a way to cross the Danube. And the Romans didn't do anything about it. And, to be fair, at this point, they really couldn't. They were in a bad situation. They had uh, sort of abandoned their military. It's like we have here. This is where I see the parallels. They'd sort of forgotten how they got to where they were. They didn't understand that by defending their borders, keeping the trade routes safe, uh, keeping the roads uh, in repair, all these things that had been very important in you know throughout, geez, even before the empire when it was still a republic, They'd been sort of lolling around in luxury for so long, and we talked about this before, that they'd sort of forgotten what got them there. And mainly, it's the people that were in Rome itself. Now, by this, the Rome had sort of split into, you know, two areas, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. And one was ruled by an Augustus, and one was ruled by a Caesar. So going back to the old Caesar Augustus, and sort of split his title. And so Constantinople which, of course, Byzantium and then eventually Istanbul uh, was very important as that sort of center of power there. But even they were spread too thin. And Rome itself uh, was just a corrupt mess. And it had always been sort of a corrupt mess. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, That was what led to the dissolution of the republic itself and ended up being an empire. But they'd get, get on their feet again, for periods of time, they'd have two or three good leaders, emperors, and they even had five in a row one time, which was really unusual. But then they have a they'd have one or two, some three in a row that were just terrible. And so they were but they were moving along because in the end, they still had a connection with the idea that what made them powerful was keeping their borders, keeping their military really strong, and supporting all these basic kind of ideas and values that it put them there and the Romans had always paid lip service at this point but still believed in the idea of these sort of agrarian values because Rome was sort of founded on the idea that you know the, the people that lived out there were farmers and the folks that were growing the grapes and all these kinds of things that you find in Italy that was where the kind of the backbone was and when they recruited people from the for the legions that was where they looked to first all these hard-working sort of farm kids out there. And they didn't really recruit as much out of Rome itself because, eh, you know, there's a lot of rich people there. There were a lot of indolent people. And, you know, it, the feeling was that you just got a stronger, more uh, sort of a, a more thoroughly Roman person in the, in the old style out uh, in the countryside, which is the same thing we have here, isn't it? It's so similar. And they thought they made better legionnaires. They thought they were better because they were used to a little more hard living and that uh, they would do better in the field. And so all of, but so those ideas they, they about hard work and, you know, honesty and all the things that they perceived was going on out there were virtues. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily did that many of them in the city of Rome, certainly not in the Senate, but they paid lip service to them. You know, by the time you get all the way out to the 4th century, uh, you end up with them barely even paying lip service to it. Everybody was indolent, Everybody's angling for their own thing. No one really was connected to the things that made them great. So when they had this huge influx of people from the other side of the Danube, and don't forget, the Goths had been in contact with the Romans for a long time now. So they were kind of Romanized. They understood what was going on over there. They had kind of an idea, and they liked the fact that things on the Roman side of the Danube were still a lot better than they were on their side of the Danube. And even if things got bad on the Roman side, it was still a lot better than where they came from. Does that sound at all familiar to you uh, in looking at our own migrant situation? Is that no matter how much our side of the border degrades, it has to degrade an awful lot before it's going to be in a situation where it's still not a lot better than where people are coming from. So uh, it was hard to keep them out. They were looking and saying, look, this is pretty miserable over here. And plus we've got the Huns, you know, pushing up against us and have decided they want our land and are massacring us. And uh, it's it's time we go someplace else. And frankly, uh, your spot is not only convenient, but it seems to be better than where we're, than where we're at. So they just kept coming. And eventually it became very difficult to support the borders out there. And nobody wanted to pay for it. They wanted to pay for other things, namely things that made them comfortable, things that made them happy, and amassing personal fortunes. The people in the Senate no longer paid any attention at all, not even pretended to pay attention to what was going on on the borders and just figured out ways to siphon money off into their own pockets. Now, I'm not saying this is happening exactly that way now, But it seems to be angling that way. In our own situation, we seem to see so many people in government, and I've spoken to this before, that their idea about trying to hold things together, the period of time that they're interested in holding things together, even for their own good, has gotten shorter and shorter, or more brief. I mean, it used to be, you know, a period of years, maybe. Now, it seems like it's just a, a stumbling grasping towards the next election and nothing else matters. And if what they're doing to get elected this time all falls apart within, oh, I don't know, another six months, as long as it's after the election, well, you know, that's uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And this is the same thing that happened then. And it puts you on this road to perditions. I mean, things just slowly start devolving and the culture and the even the streets, everything else, become less pristine, become less Roman-like, less American-like. You know, things just don't get done as much. The roads don't get repaired as often. There's weeds everywhere in places that never used to be weeds. And yet there's constantly uh, grasping for money and power uh, by the elites and they no longer really care about any of the virtues that created the country. And to me, the trigger point for that is when they don't care if you know that or not, when they no longer even give a pretend kind of uh, lip service to it. I hate using the word lip service. It just means just talking about it. But they don't, they don't even talk about it. And they don't care anymore, it seems to me, about what you discover about them, right? I mean, they discover a lot of things about politicians and their finances and things they're doing and nepotism, and, you know, all all this kind of stuff. I'm not even talking about criminal activity. Well, remember, criminal activity is just what you define it to be. If you're not careful, you can write enough laws to where everybody's a criminal. It doesn't mean they're bad people at that point. It just means that everybody is susceptible to some sort of prosecution, which also falls into the hands of people in power. So you just stop caring, or rather not you, but the people in power, stop caring if you even find out about them. Because it doesn't seem to hurt them. Now, that's our fault, just like it was a Roman citizen's fault. When you're appeased by bread and circuses, uh, when you're on the dole, when half the city is on the dole, and everybody is beholden for that to a certain group of politicians who are still running things terribly and enriching themselves, eh, they're taking care of you, sort of. So uh, we'll support them rather than the people that say look we got to re- we got to reset this system people got to go back to work things got to happen we got to start finding our way back to the values that we had originally utilized to make us great this is a little bit what what Trump was trying to say with the make america great again it isn't just getting the stock market up and these other kinds of things what it is is it's it's reigniting in people the knowledge and the connection to the virtues and the ways of doing business that made the country great to begin with? Does it mean you're going to go back in time and all of this ridiculous nonsense you hear from the left? Because, see, they're afraid of that. They don't want to do that because a lot of what those virtues and ways of doing business are would eliminate what they're doing. And they're doing is is you're using things and policies and other stratagems to accumulate wealth and power for themselves. If we went back to those virtues and the things that made the country great again, a lot of that would disappear. So they don't want that. So they want to pretend like, "Oh no, it's not that you want things. Good, you just want to go back to the past." Right? You just you're living in the past. And then they start dressing it up as time goes by with, you know, you want to go back when when people were all segregated and stuff because that's when you had all the power, right? They want to say that about, you know, white people or you know, they want to say that about people uh, who were in power in the past or whatever they want to do. It, it's, it's, you know, everything's an ism now. It's a racism, sexism, transphobia.ism Phobia has become a word that just gets attached to everything. And, of course, phobia means a fear of. We've sort of morphed it into using it like a something you don't like, right? We well, are transphobic when they mean to say you don't like uh, trans, right? Uh, no, it's not. Phobia doesn't mean like. It means you're afraid of it. Right? So, <laughs> that's that's not what it means. But we've decided to utilize it that way. So, we're changing that language. That was actually one of the first words I think we started changing, and certainly not for the better. But, uh, so we use that. So, you paste that onto people when they're trying to say, look, we need to get back to the basics. Not, we can go back in time, you know, like we want to turn the clock back and you know, live in Father's Knows Best time, Uh, we want to go back and find out what values throughout our historical precedents, made us great. And we want to find out the sorts of things that you need to nurture to make the country function better. That's what conservatism is, is that you want to conserve those things that work, those things that were valuable. You want to conserve them. It's funny that in in a culture that is so into conservation and the environment and saving things, that being a conservative, which is at its basis the idea that you want to conserve those things that are good and valuable, is not seen as being super cool by the liberal folks. It seems uh, antithetical to that. It certainly isn't the same thinking, is it? Anyway, so you can see that, that as you let yourself kind of be overrun and things just slip away, you realize that it isn't that isn't the triggering event. It's what happens. The triggering event is not caring anymore. The triggering event is letting people get away with it. The triggering event is uh, allowing people to do things that are really against the virtues that created your country, what made you great, and letting them stay in power. Just, oh, well, everybody's like that. Everybody's doing it. Now, there is a little real politic that does have to get sort of swirled into this. You oftentimes are presented with what I hear conservatives talk about all the time, you know, that, you know, the lesser of two evils. Nobody likes that because you feel like that at the end of the day, you're still voting for an evil, right? So, geez, was it, we had a choice between uh, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, and we voted for Mitt Romney. Although now, I'm not sure if that was, really the right choice or not? (laughs) But uh, you know, that's the choice of evils. And so nobody wants to do that. And you're sometimes presented with this system where you have a choice of two people and uh, you don't really like either one of them. But you always have to remember, and this is something the Democrats have mastered over the last 20 years, and that is that for them, any Democrat is better than any Republican. doesn't matter. And they've been successful with that. They've sort of gathered around that, where in the past they were all shattered and in different little interest groups. They weren't really one political party. They were, you know, sort of a bunch of interest groups that were sort of in a corral, and they were constantly trying to break out. They still are a little like that, but they've all decided on one thing, that when it comes to elections, any Democrat is better than any Republican, certainly any conservative Republican. That You know, that's even more of a horrific thing to them. So when you have that kind of thought process going on, it's bad in some instances for the country, but it works for elections, especially if you allow the other side to constantly argue and fuss with each other. I guess that's why I'm a little more concerned about this uh, vote for Kevin McCarthy for House Speaker, not to get, you know, too far off, but I think it all is all sort of how these things happen, like we started talking about how civilizations just rotate into into areas that their virtues are forgotten and they argue about things that don't matter and they can't agree on anything and the people who are in charge can agree on one thing, and that is that they need to get as much money and power as they possibly can. And if that means other guys you want to fight the whole day and not get anything done, that's okay. So uh, I guess... If we're not careful, we can throw away what little victory we had in the 2022, it seems to me like. I, I interviewed Kevin McCarthy, geez, years ago on the radio here, and he seemed fine. Uh, he wasn't as uh, powerful as he is now, but he seemed fine. Do I think he would be my choice for a speaker if I could like reach out and uh, anoint somebody? No. Do I think there are worse people? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of worse people. And uh, a tremendous amount of them are Democrats, and there are some uh, Republicans that aren't so sharp either. So, once again, you have that choice of evils thing. Well, McCarthy has a lot of people locked up to vote for him. It's not quite enough now, and there are people holding out. I just hope they don't hold out too long and let the Democrats get their foot in the door and mess around with the selection of the speakership and... um, Try and get in and say, "Look, we'll vote for you if you let us be on this committee, or you do this or that." There's a lot of deal making that goes on. I mean, surprise, surprise. And this is an opportunity. If if you don't have the votes to get something done like this, like the speakership, then you open the door for this uh, sort of smoky back room. Although I don't think it would be a vaping back room, probably now, to uh, make these deals to get some extra votes from across the aisle or this or that. Um, I think what a lot of the Republicans are holding out for is, you know, if we can't get a different speaker, then we want this one who, you know, needs our vote to promise us certain things. Well, you don't want to hold out so long that the Democrats start doing the same thing because who knows where that ends. Now, I know it would look bad for McCarthy. I'm just saying politics are... A difficult area to try and insert or assert, perhaps would be a better way to put it, to assert sort of uh, principles. Uh, I think we could probably make a little uh, sign and put it over the door that just says, uh, politics trumps principles. And that would probably be as as right on as you're going to get. Especially if you put it over Congress. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I just hope that we don't get in too deep and end up squandering even further some of the, the ability to get something done in Congress. I mean, we have enough uh, agenda now to where people can't decide what one they want and how fast to do it. You know, should we impeach Mayorkas, you know, the Department of Homeland Security? Well, the guy is first, he lies in Congress constantly. Secondly, he is not doing his job at all. And thirdly, even when he's not doing his job, he seems to be doing things completely against what his job is. I mean, by not doing his job, we could say like he stayed home. No, he's worse than if he stayed home. He's actively working against the, what he's supposed to be doing. So, yeah, the temptation of peaching is, is high. And I'm not sure I have make, made my mind up completely about that. I just think they need to pick their targets very carefully so that they're not trying to do everything at once so it looks like they're doing everything but the business that people want, which is trying to get the country back on its feet. Some of these things are actually things that need to be done to get the country back on its feet. But you have to remember that the press is going to report this stuff as nastily as possible. So they really have to pick their battles. And I'd like to see them come in strong when they're doing that. So anyway, I think that if they do that, if they can settle behind somebody and pick their battles, we could see some some things that work very well in this next election.